Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the Preacher's Corner. I'm Pastor Jay, and today we're in John 18. And man, things are going to get hot real fast with the arrest of Jesus today and those things which transpire during that, that moment. So let's just dive right in. Father, we thank you. We thank you for understanding these things, for the revelation of them as you give them to us through your word. We thank you, Lord, for the person of our Savior as well as the power of our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for being able in the future to just be before your throne and, Lord, to, to just kneel at the feet of Jesus even as John did, to lay down at his feet as though we were dead, as understanding that everything that we are comes from him, not everything that we have comes from you, Father. And we're just, we're just grateful that you, would so, that you would love us so much that Jesus would come and die for the ungodly. We're so grateful. Help us to receive this today, this arrest. Help us to see the authority, the power, of the Son of God, and give us courage, Lord, to be your servants. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, here we go in John chapter number 18. We're going to read the first three verses, just a couple of questions out of that, and then we're going to proceed to Jesus' conversation with the people who have come to arrest him. In the first three verses, we see that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So we have the scenario that Jesus, when he had spoken all these words, of course the words that we're referring to as being spoken happened back in chapter number 13 all the way up to chapter number 17. Chapters 13 to 16, a great deal of last things type of instructions that Jesus is giving to his disciples as he's teaching them throughout the supper in the upper room. And then chapter 17, where his prayer unfolds for not only his disciples that are in the upper room with him, but also for us in this modern day, which was really exciting that we got from yesterday. So when he had finished all of these things that he had said, they went out with his disciples. Now, in the Gospel of Luke or in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find that the garden that they're going to is a garden called Gethsemane. But of course, now with the Gospel of John, you're going to get a little bit more specifics about this garden, not in its name, because the name has already been given. Keep in mind that at the, at the first Gospel that had been penned, being Mark, and then you'll find subsequent Gospels that come after Mark with Matthew and Luke. Then you have, after all three Gospels completion, the Gospel of John. And so he's already familiar with, with what Matthew had written. He's already familiar with what Mark or what Luke had penned. And so there's some things that are not necessary to, to put in because everybody knows that it's Gethsemane that Jesus is going to. When he said that this was a garden where they often met, I mean, it would, all you'd have to say is a garden, and everybody within the local area would be like, oh, that's Gethsemane. That's where Jesus used to meet with his disciples. 
And so he didn't put the name of the garden in there, but he did put something in there that that is of note, and it's the brook Kidron. So this gives you more specific directions from Jerusalem to the location of the garden that would be there. That's kind of exciting. Now, of course, Judas, he's going to know all about this. He's been following Jesus, and the patterns of Jesus have not changed within the last three years since he'd been called to to the service of Christ. And so Judas knows exactly where Jesus is going to be, and Judas knows where to point the bad guys to. Keep in mind that after after dipping the, the bread in the cup with Jesus, that it was time for him to go and do what it was for him to do quickly. As Jesus said, go and do what you must do quickly. Out the door he goes. This is what he's doing. Verse number three, he's procuring a band of soldiers. Now, it isn't like he has to go round these boys up. They're already on alert. They're already standing by. Everybody knows Jesus is back in town. As you recall, all the way back in in John chapter number 11, he's going back into Jerusalem after having left in John chapter number 10 after such a riotous moment that happened there with with John chapter 9 and 10 with the the healing of the blind man and the conversation that Jesus had riled up the, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and pretty much everybody. And so they all know he's back in town from the resurrection of Lazarus. They all know that that it's time to catch him. They're all on high alerts. This procurement of soldiers is nothing. Uh, Judas just had to pop up at at the palace of the chief priest and say, I know where he's going to be, and he's got a legion following him. And so after procuring a band of soldiers, important point here as well, not only the Roman soldiers, but some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So when, when we look at the greater crowd that we're going to see in this moment, it's a lot more than often what is shown uh, to us at the, at the resurrection of Christ or at the, at the trial of Christ because the people that come to arrest him are more than just Roman soldiers. There's Pharisees there. There's there's emissaries of the chief priest and or temple guard there. there. There's a whole lot of people that have gathered together for this moment. And that's exciting. What are they carrying? Lanterns and torches so that they're able to see where they're going and weapons. As if to say that this was going to be a fight to the death because of the threat of an overthrow of a whole entire government that would be meeting in the Garden of Gethsemane, assumedly, as as it was believed that they were going to have a, a coup attempt against Rome. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth as concerning a coup attempt because there isn't such thing as a coup when the King of Kings is present. He is the authority. He is the power. He is the rightful ruler of all this world. So there wouldn't be any kind of coup, but very important for mankind would see it that way in his fallen nature. So we move forward to verse number four, very exciting moment that happens here. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, who do you seek? 
Do you catch the reality that Jesus, it's, this isn't like he doesn't know what's going on. The reason why he moved his, his disciples, the reason why he moved to the garden in Gethsemane is because he knows his arrest is imminent. And you can't break through the door and do a shock and awe attack like a blitzkrieg if we're not in a home. He's out in the garden that's much more difficult a place for them to be able to set up for ambush or to set up for an assault. So that's really exciting because Jesus, he's protecting his disciples. Little do we know, right? He's, he's watching over those disciples. If they were to gang rush into an upper room where none of the disciples had ability to flee, then all could be snatched up at the same time. But in that garden, it would be a lot more difficult for them to be able to capture and seize everyone else besides Jesus, who's willing to give himself over, because they have more escape routes to be able to flee. And if you're not familiar with that garden, you're not going to catch the kids. Well, the reality is, is that Jesus has come to this garden every time he's come to, to Judea. He's come to this garden so often that, that they are familiar with every ounce of that landscape without light. And so this is uh, something that I think about Jesus often. The things that he does, he does for a reason. The trainings that he gives, he gives for a reason. There's always hope in Christ. These guys don't have to worry about being captured because they could easily escape. And Jesus knows that. He gave them hope for that freedom. But he's also going to ensure the security by saying, leave these disciples alone. You came for me. I'm coming peacefully. So that's that's also something that Jesus is going to do. So you've got these Roman soldiers, and they're the ones who are doing the talking. It's obvious that they're doing the talking because the Pharisees that would be present know exactly who they're looking to arrest. And maybe not for the temple guard or for the emissaries of the chief priest. They may not know him very well. They may not have ever seen him. But those Pharisees, they're the ones that have been having the most direct contact with Jesus, the most direct uh, arguments in warfare, verbal warfare, with Jesus. So they know exactly who he is. But in the presence of the Roman guard, they're silent. Because you don't ruffle the feathers of Rome. And they won't ruffle the feathers. So Jesus knowing everything that's going to happen. That That is where, of course, we, we have this scene where he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane as it would be revealed in Luke that they, they sang a hymn and they went into the garden to pray. Of course, as we find in Matthew also, that in that time of prayer where they're in the garden, there are three separate sections of hours that Jesus would, would be in prayer and such a deep contrition of prayer that it would seem as though he were sweating drops of blood and then he would come back and he would find his disciples asleep and he would wake them up and he would he fussed at them to just stay awake and be in prayer with him for his hour has come and he goes back into that prayer and, and the prayer that he has the second time is the same as the prayer he had at the first time. And then he comes back to his disciples. What does he do? He finds them asleep. Now, this is all happening in the midst of this verse 3 and verse 4. 
So that's very important for us to understand as well as when we come to John chapter number 18, there's actually several hours, six hours or, or more involved in events that were happening before these Roman soldiers showed up. From the time of, of their ending of the Seder meal to the time of Jesus' arrest, you have probably, I shouldn't say more than six hours, you probably got between three and six hours that, that are given. But those hours are what we consider to be through the night, right? So you, you begin your prayer sessions at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and then at midnight, you find your disciples asleep. You go to wake them up. You come back around two, and, and they're falling asleep again. You go to wake them up. You come back around four, and you know, it's just no point in, in waking them up this time. Just get some sleep because we're about to go through a long day, and that's when Rome, that's when John chapter number 18, that's when this takes place around four o'clock in the morning. That would be the great stir that would wake everybody up. You're still under the cover of darkness, but you're about to hit the day dawning. And Jesus, he's been praying, 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 but he understands exactly what he's got to go through and he understands exactly what's going to happen to him. He knows the, the guards that are going to punch him. He knows the the ridicule he's going to have to face, the the words that are going to cut deeper than the the punch ever could. He knows he's going to be whipped. He knows he's going to, he knows he's going to endure all of these things because the scripture tells us that it says that knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, "Who do you seek?" And in verse number five, the Roman guard they answered him, "Jesus of Nazareth." Now. This is very important to this point because when you look at Jesus, and and keep in mind Isaiah chapter number 53 that says that he wasn't a, a good-looking man, that, that he wasn't somebody that you would desire to be around, that, that, that he didn't have any kind of uh, distinguishing features that would set him apart from Peter or James or John or Bartholomew or or Matthew, or or Luke, or anybody else, in that period of time, Jesus would have just been an average-looking guy, if not a little bit poorer than average, based on the Scripture. And so, as he's standing with a pile of his disciples, exactly which one of them is Jesus? Now, Judas knows. Judas is the one who... In the other accounts, you'll find that he would walk up through the Roman guard and that he would kiss him on the cheek as a, as a common form of greeting between people in the Middle East as well as it is in South America, as well as it is over in Africa and, and so many different nations. A, a kiss as... as on the cheeks, as it was, is, is a formal kind of greeting or, or a blessing that would be bestowed upon the guest. And so this isn't something that is kooky or off-board. This is something that is commonplace. Well, we know from the accounts of Matthew and Luke that it is a moment that Judas would come and kiss him in the betrayal that would cause the, the legion, the Romans, to hone in on him to know exactly who they're going to arrest. 
But we find before that kiss, there is these questions that are asked as concerning what Jesus is saying, because it, it makes sense when, when you have all of these people come up is to say, uh, so who are you guys looking for? And so he says, who do you seek? And, and they answered him in verse five, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, please, please catch verse five and six, please. Now, these guards, remember in verse three, these soldiers, and a Roman soldier is nothing to scoff at. A Roman soldier is, is so highly trained that, that they are going to fight to the death. They are warriors. Rome were fighting machines. They were exactly what they were supposed to be. They were honed and geared to war and destruction. That's what they do. And so you've got to keep that in mind with these soldiers that have come to arrest Jesus. And so in verse number five, when it says that Jesus, he said to them, I am he. It's very important that you catch the I am. This is the position of the yod heh vav -He, or the position of what God would introduce himself to, to Moses as being his name, I am who I am, the very Yahweh. And Jesus said, Yahweh. <laughs> he said, I am he. And of course, in verse 5, there's that caveat that shows you Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. With them. And we get that because he's the one who comes up and he kisses Jesus on the cheek. But look at verse number 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, come on. They drew back and fell to the ground. The Roman soldiers would bow to the feet of Jesus, a, a common slave of the Jews. The, the temple guard who were longing for his arrest, would bow down before Jesus? That Karaite Jewish nut that was causing all these problems? The Pharisees that would be present, longing for the death of Jesus for at least two years to this point of getting their hands on him, and they would fall down before his feet? bow down to his majesty, this would happen? You bet it did. To understand this moment is to understand the power and the authority of the Son of God in the presence of even those who would dishonor him, even those who would not follow or believe in him. You see, in Ezekiel chapter number 18 and verse number 4, when God said, all souls belong to me, you see that very authority of the I am in the presence of those souls, even that reject him the most and despise him the most, are still powerless to stand against him. And they bow the knee. Now, this isn't the position that, that God needs them to be in. This isn't the position that Jesus, in fact, needs them to be in because he's got to be betrayed, because he's got to be handed over. He has to die. 
so that he can fulfill his father's will and so that he can be that sacrificed lamb on our behalf. He has to die. But how can you be betrayed and how can you die when with three simple words, all that have come to arrest you are now bowing before your feet? Jesus said, I am he. They, the word they covers the whole group that came with Judas to betray him. They drew back. They they didn't advance to come and lay hands on him. They drew back and fell to the ground. Oh, man. Did nobody pay attention to what was happening in that moment? Did it not dawn upon the Roman guard that by three little words and not even a gesture, not even a a hand being laid on anyone, just, just three little words, that they were compelled to fall down in his feet? Did, did they not see that? Did, the, did the, the Jews present, rather they were of the Pharisees or of the emissaries of the chief priests, did they, did they not experience this moment where, where even they, who despised him the most and believed the worst about him, the Roman guard didn't care, it was just a person they were told to arrest, but these guys, it was personal. Didn't they observe and pay attention to their own actions as they stepped back with the Roman guard and fell down at his feet? That would force Jesus to ask once more, verse number seven, who do you seek? Who are you looking for? Who, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says to them, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Isn't that amazing? So as for Jesus to remain silent and not betray his own self and give himself away is for the whole lot of them to be arrested Now, not with the technicality. Of course, the technicality I'm referring to is being Judas walking up and giving Jesus a kiss on the cheek. But keep in mind that Judas, being a disciple of Jesus for the period of time that that he was a disciple of Jesus, was not going to be trusted by Rome, certainly, nor would Judas be trusted by the Pharisees or the emissaries of the chief priest because they, they in their heart, though they trusted him to bring them to the disciples, did not trust him that he would actually betray Jesus, that he might have a, a change of heart, that he, that he might have a second thoughts, whatever you want to call it. It's the normal reaction of humanity as concerning the moment of betrayal of your master. So when Judas walks up and kisses Jesus on the cheek, the chief priest emissaries and the the Pharisees still don't trust that that's actually Jesus. It could have been any of the disciples, because how do we differentiate Jesus from any of the rest of the disciples in the poorness of the, the light that doesn't exist? We're still in darkness with lanterns and torches, so we really don't have 
a good view of, of the face of the image of Christ. And so Judas could have walked up and kissed Peter, and, it, and what difference would it have made to him? He could have walked up and kissed Bar- Bartholomew or Matthew or, or Simeon or, or, or the other Judas just because he carried the same name and he's upset about that. He could have kissed John. So we understand that when Judas walked up and kissed Jesus in that betrayal, that Jesus still would announce who he is just so he could ensure that the rest of the disciples are not going to be tampered with, that they're not going to be arrested because they came for Jesus. That's why he asked, who do you seek? And that they would tell him, Jesus of Nazareth which means they're not looking for John, they're not looking for Matthew, they're not looking for Simeon or Judas or or Andrew or Peter or any of the other guys. They're just looking for Jesus. And so Jesus tells them, I am he. But of course, that initiates a reaction that throws everybody back and they hit the ground, which I love because the absolute authority of the king is before them. You know, these guys, they don't even necessarily bow like they did before Jesus to their own Caesar. They, they, this, isn't, this just isn't something that is done. But you, you must bow before your king. The position of greeting to a king, the position of, of essentially standing before the king is on your face to the ground. That's exactly where they ended up. And so... Jesus had to ask them again, who do you seek? And of course, they say Jesus of Nazareth again. The verse number eight, he said, I told you. <laughs> it's like, what are you, deaf? I've already told you. But of course, at the moment that he said, I am he, all oh, the great Yahweh spoke. And the crowd hit the floor, baffled of the power and presence of the king. And so Jesus had to fix him again. He said, I told you that I'm he. He said, so if you seek me, let these men go. Well, now we understand yet more fulfilled prophecy. And this is what verse number nine reveals to us. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have lost, I have lost not one. I take you back to John chapter number six. And that he says, all that, all that you have given me have come to me, and I have received them, and I will not lose one, nor will I cast them out, but I will raise them up in the last day. And so also in John chapter number 10, when he said it, he was the, the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep, he said, they are mine, and they know me, and I know them. They hear my voice, and they follow me. He says, they're they're the sheep of my father's sheepfold, and I ain't going to lose one. Of course, Jesus also proved that in the parable of the ninety and nine, where there was one sheep that was out. Jesus went and got him, uh, regardless of the peril. uh, He he got a hold of him. Well, because he isn't going to lose one. He's going to raise him up. He's going to gather him together. He's going to keep us. So the the word that Jesus himself had spoken had been fulfilled that said, of those whom you have given me, I've not lost one. Now for old Peter. Good old Peter. Verse number 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and 
cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Malchut is the word for kingdom. So that's, that's pretty exciting. But anyways, the point of, of his right ear, which is also another exciting point, is because, it, it, sorry lefties, but in the scripture, often when, when things are being referred to on the right, it's being referred to on the strong side. So you, you see that, that with this right ear, of course, it's the strength of, of the observance. With the ears we hear to be able to understand, so it's the strength of the observance of the kingdom. And, and his ear is cut off because they, they cannot hear. Ears they have, but they cannot hear, Jesus taught. Eyes they have, but they cannot see. Neither can they understand, lest at any time... They should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and be converted. Well, this guy happened to lose his right ear, which is, by all intent and purpose of the Hebrews, the most important ear, as it's the, the ear of strength. And so he says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest. Another question that I have real quick at verse number 10, what in the world is a fisherman doing sword. See, Peter, James, John, Andrew, these boys were fishermen up in the lake up in Galilee. These guys are not soldiers. And yet he has a proficiency with a sword to be able to slice an ear off with, with no problem at all. To draw it to strike. It's not like he's just wildly swinging this thing and it accidentally happened to hit a, a person in the ear as to assume that if a person was, was prepared to see this attack coming or that the attack began in a wild manner, that it would be more than the ear that would have been cut. It would have been the skull. It would have been the neck. It would have been, it would have been something worse than just an ear. But when you think about it and you look at this image, you look, you look at my face right now, you see my image, to, to observe my ears, which you can barely see because I have all kinds of hair over them, <laughs> get my hair back, but you see the difficulty of being able to spot these ears. Now, take the possibility of more hair covering the ears and beard coming down. Take the possibility of not even being able to see the ear, and yet Peter... Swings that sword. Now, if, if People say, well, he just got lucky. No, I don't believe he just got lucky. I don't believe that at all because you would be aiming for broader targets if you didn't know how to use a weapon. You would be looking for those broader targets to be able to hit. You would have gone for the neck. You would have gone for the head as a whole. You would have gone... You would have gone for the chest. You would have gone for something that you knew would make a maximum impact, but that would be... Uh, easier for you to hit because you have no idea what you're doing with this implement, with this weapon. I don't believe that at all. I believe that when 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 Peter drew that sword, he drew it in in such a manner as that he was able to draw and strike at the same time. Which, by the way, takes a great deal of skill to be able to draw an attack in the same fluid motion. And I believe that, that Peter targeted that ear 
I believe that it was very possible that indeed he may have been going for something greater than the ear and that and the servant moved and that's what he got. But it it's it's insanely difficult to get an ear from a fluid motion of draw and attack. But Peter did. This tells me that that Peter, that simple old fisherman, was a whole lot more than just a simple old fisherman. This is a boy that was trained. This is a boy who trained. This is a boy that was ready to fight. All those times through, through the gospel that we see Peter saying, no, we're going to stand with you. We're going to fight for you. We're going to die with you. Him and Thomas and, and Philip, and, the, and, and that they say, no, you're not going anywhere. You're going to stay behind me, and I'm going to fight the battle for you. You're my king. I'm, I'm going to war. Peter really meant that. And Peter, he testified to his own belief that Jesus, you are my king, and I will die before you do. I'm going to go to war. Even if I'm alone, I will fight to my last breath. And, and Peter really did that. He, he took that swing, and he was on. I mean, at this point, had Jesus not pulled him back, he would have gone to hacking, and he would have gone after every, every single one of those soldiers. He would, he would have done what he could have done until enough blades came inside of him that he ended up perishing. He would have done what he needed to do. And that's one thing I got to say about Peter that I stand with him on. Because when it comes time to fight, and it's just time to fight, there's, there's no time for anything else. And, and Simon Peter, he drew that sword and he went to work. But what does Jesus do? What does he do to him? So Jesus, after this moment, after this ear, Jesus, he fusses at Peter. He says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is something I've got to do. Now, do you, did you catch on to what was happening in verse number 11 as Jesus told Peter, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Do you recall another moment, a uh, long time before this, where Jesus was teaching about his death and his, and his resurrection? And, and of course, here comes Peter again. He says, Peter and James and John, really these three. But he says, Lord, we want to go where you're going. We can handle the things that you're going to have to go through. And Jesus said, can you drink of the cup that I must drink of? Can you? And Peter said, yes, Lord, we're willing to die for you. And Jesus said, indeed, you shall drink of the cup that I am going to have to drink of. This is it. And by the way, we know that Peter according to the writings of the Romans and as well according to the writings of Josephus as well, that he was crucified. And then he was crucified upside down. But we understand that that, that is the cup that was necessary for Jesus to drink of, and Jesus promised Peter that indeed he would drink of the cup that Jesus drank of. And so Jesus remained true even even after his resurrection, in that Peter was going to have to suffer such a great, uh, a great suffering because Jesus said, okay, you'll get what I got, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> Jesus said, put your sword away, man. It's time for me to drink the cup that the Father has given me. 
And that is what is done. So Jesus, in the first account of after his arrest, comes before the high priest. Well, of course, which one, right? It, it happened to be the point of time which Caiaphas would be the high priest, but of course we also know that Annas was, was also recognized as the high priest, the father-in-law. So, depending on which one was taking the shift for that particular year, as it would stand. But here we go, verses 12 to 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So Caiaphas was the high priest that year, but Annas had more authority over Caiaphas. And so the, the Jesus... And the guard was brought him, brought Jesus to Annas first. Verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people, just so you remember who Caiaphas is. It's an interesting situation that you have between these, these two, uh, father-in-law and, or father and son-in-law, or father-in-law and son. It's an interesting dynamic as they are together in this house as the soldiers would bring Jesus to them that Annas would be the first to be to be able to receive Jesus but Caiaphas there as well. Interesting that Caiaphas would acknowledge Jesus of course what it was revealed in verse number 14 that we get from uh, John chapter number 12 that Caiaphas would acknowledge that the, the Sanhedrin court was ridiculous for not observing the fact that it was necessary for one man to die for the whole nation because it was throughout the prophets in Revelation of the Old Testament. So he understands Caiaphas. He understands what is necessary to happen. And he has an idea of what is about to happen. But he still is a rejecter of Jesus being the Messiah. So we come to the position of Peter and then the, the denial of Jesus. And I believe from this position that I'm going to read through from verse 15 to 18. We'll see how far we get, though. The Scripture says in verse number 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Of course, we know who that is because John never refers to himself in first position or in second position. He always talks about himself in the third person. So Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest. Now, this is where it gets interesting that the apostle John would be a, a young man that would be recognized in the court of the high priest, which would be Caiaphas at this point. He's, he is one of the beloved of Caiaphas, that Annas, that the whole family would know John and not be offended by the presence of John, which is really exciting. And so since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter, he stood outside at the door. Now, it's an interesting position that you have because we're dealing with a position of the, the house 
of the high priest. And so when we come back up, we see that first they led Jesus to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and it was Caiaphas. So you get all of that. You're dealing with a difference between a court and a door. So realize that the door is the initial entryway into the estate of the home or into the into the estate of the temple as it was as well. So the door would be the main portico that you would have to go through to even access the first court, which is in the temple is called the inner or the outer court. And this is where the the women would gather. And then from that court, you would go through another door into the inner court, which is where the men would gather. And through another door, you would enter into the holy place, which is a place reserved for the priesthood alone to go. And through another door, you would find the most holy place, which is where only the high priest could go. So, you, you find that when it says door and courtyard, that the door would be the position of the initial front or entrance, the wall, the walled gate that, that would be a protection for the estate that would be behind it. And so that you would find Peter stalling out at the door, whereas John would go right through that door and into the courtyard. He says, verse 16, But Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. But the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? See, now let, let's take a look at this position. So the other disciple, John, right? So Peter, he stops outside at the door. So John, who was known to the high priest, says, the servant girl knows John. He, he walks right past her and she's like, hey, John. He's like, hey, young lady, good to see you. Walks right past her. Now, Peter, he, he's not somebody that's known, so he stalls out at the door and everybody's looking at him because he was essentially walking with John, but why didn't you go in? I mean, it makes no sense. Why didn't you go in? What what exactly kept you outside that door? Of course, we know what kept him outside that door was the reality that Jesus knew in Peter's heart that he was going to deny him three times before the, the rooster crowed. So we understood that, but but essentially everybody's looking at him like, why aren't you going in? So John... He comes out and speaks to the servant girl and says, uh, can you let my buddy pass? And goes back in. Well, the servant girl says to, to Peter, she says, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he said, no, first denial, I'm not. Now, the servants and officers the one people that Peter really doesn't want to be around because even though Jesus got got them to let him go because of cutting the servant's ear off, and of course what it wasn't covered in John was the fact that Jesus put the ear back on so that there was no harm, no foul. But the one people that Peter really doesn't want to be around right now is the officers. And where do the officers and the servants hang out? By the burn barrel at the door. <laughs> 
So the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. (laughs) What in the world are you doing there? Peter, what can you say about Peter but that we're very much like him and he is very much like us a lot of times. But I cannot go any further. I've got to stop here, and we will jump into, on Monday, the the questioning of Jesus from the high priest perspective. So that'll be exciting. I hope that you have a blessed weekend, and may God just be with you in, in everything that you seek to do. Father, we thank you and praise you, asking your blessing upon us as we consider these things that we have seen. The great I am of our God revealed in Jesus with a whole flock of the soldiers falling at his feet. The the reality, Lord, that, that you indeed are King of kings, Lord of lords, the authority of all the creation that you have made. And, and thus, you would surrender yourself for the purpose of dying on behalf of man but that you would take up your life again as you had power to lay it down. You told us that you also had power to take it up again, and you will raise those whom you have granted eternal life at the last day. Father, we are so grateful for those promises that we have in Jesus, and we ask your blessing upon our heart this weekend as we consider these things. In thy precious and holy name, amen. God bless you guys, keep you guys, cause his face to shine upon you, and we shall catch you on Monday for John 18. Take care.